This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You are now tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. We're back with season two, our first show for 2016. Feeling very excited. I'm joined by my comrade, Greg Nicholson. Thanks for having me. This guy's been gymming a lot this year. You can't see him, but he's all buff. He's got his, <laughs> he's got his protein shake on the table and everything, man. Well, uh, 2016, New Year, a new man. I love that you said New Year, new me. But you have right. to say compliments. Compliments of the season and to all of our listeners. I hope you had a great holiday. I think it's a weird thing to say, compliments of the season. It's like, I want to say something nice, but I'm not bothered to say something nice. So I'll just <laughs> say, imagine if you walked in and somebody was like, I compliment you. Pretty fucking weird, right? As long as you have the intention there, you know, the, okay. the feeling that you want to do something nice for somebody. I think that's, that's the main thing. Jeez, okay. You had uh, to but I think we're getting to the period of the year where you don't say compliments anymore because you can't just keep on saying this thing until April. Okay. Well, let's, okay. The cutoff was today. We're not going to say it again. Now to actual news, what you came here for. Um, today we'll be talking about some of the stories to watch during the year. So first we'll be looking at the local municipal elections. We'll also be looking at American presidential elections, which have really been something to watch. And lastly, asking what's going on with the global economy. Everybody's saying it's tanking and everything's gone to shit. We want to find out what's actually going on. Remember, you can tweet us at DMShowsAday. You can also call us on 0861-555-189. Now, to get started. We will be talking to Professor Susan Boyson from the Witt School of Governance, author of a bunch of books, including one called Dominance and Decline, the ANC in the Time of Zuna. <laughs> that is not a great start. The producer will be calling her back just now. I mean, Greg, let's start with you, man. You were in Rustenburg over the weekend, and I'm curious about what you felt from just the tone of of our ruling ANC party's feeling going into this year and these elections. What what kind of feeling? Are they confident? Are they worried? How you feel? How do you think they're feeling? Um, I think there's a few important things to remember, and we have to take it back to the end of last year, yeah. which particularly for Zuma and and the ANC, and I guess South Africa in general, is a very tough time uh, after Zuma's decision to replace Finance Minister and Klanslaneni with uh, Des Van Ruen, and then, of course, within four days, reappoint Pravin Gordon, who was uh, the Finance Minister for Zuma's fourth, uh, first term sorry, until the, the 2014 uh, reshuffle. And that... Oh, um, so you said, is the prof on the phone? I think she's back. Professor Susan Boyson, can you hear us? Good afternoon. Okay, perfect. Sorry, we lost you there for a second. Um, so, Professor, we were just talking about how this year we're going to have the municipal elections, and it sounds like people don't know too much about what, what to expect. So I was hoping you could just give us an idea of what are you looking out for, especially going into these elections. Yes, it's going to be fascinating, local government elections. You know, we know we ANC is weakened, but it is not at the point of collapse. We know opposition parties are mounting some threats. But opposition parties remain uh, their biggest enemies in many respects. So in some ways, it is the ANC fighting this election against itself, but only in some ways. Against itself in the sense that the ANC makes mistakes and makes big mistakes and its leadership makes huge mistakes. And the voters have to decide, especially come local elections, to what extent do they vote for the party and to what extent do they vote for local dynamics? And that is where we see some change between national and provincial elections mm. on the one hand and local on the other hand. 
Because in local, the national narratives and the big issues of race and this is, are we still fighting the liberation struggle, etc. Mm. Those themes get transposed onto the local campaign. Mm. But simultaneously, it is the local issues that are really big. Service delivery at local level, it's so evident to many residents what is not being done despite this grand narrative and who is corrupt, and what cronyism, and what mismanagement mm. is happening. Mm. And very often that it has impact on how the voters vote locally. But when we look back to the national results, the, the ANC generally does about 2 to 3 percentage points worse in local elections, and judged by the, the, the proportional representation component of the vote, compared to how they would have done and did in the previous national mm, elections. Mm. The Democratic Alliance does two to three percentage points better in local than in national. Mm. And then we see uh, the local service delivery and the evidence of corruption issue being through, but not to a large extent. And of course, the ESS comes into the picture. Opinion polls, re- relatively recent ones, a few months ago, show that the ESS is the party that's really growing, that's compared to 2014 elections, that is doubling up its electoral support. We hear from the ESS that they are really working on the ground and making sure that their supporters this gone around are actually registered. But local elections are very difficult to find. But the ESS is probably going to be a big change factor. They're taking away both from the ANC and from the DA. So it, there are consistencies compared with national elections, but there are also great space for variation. Of course, there are many smaller parties, local parties, mm. independent candidates that contest at the local level who also hold a sway in small councils, sometimes in bigger, some of the bigger metropolitan mm. councils and small parties next time around, this year around, could make a big difference. Small parties, independents, to have a big role in local elections, something which we do not see it at national. When I hear you, Professor, there's been a lot of talk, something I'd like to talk about is there's been a lot of talk about especially Johannesburg, Twane, and Nelson Mandela Bay Metropolitan. Mm-hmm. And and the, 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 the conversation is that ANC is going to lose these. And I'm curious, I mean, what, what are the actual key factors at play in those municipalities specifically? And, and is, this, is it just hype or is there a real possibility that these could go to another party? There is a real possibility. When these the results on the proportional representation mm-hmm. that get get compared national and local, and here just important footnote, it's important to compare the 2014 local uh, 2014 national results mm-hmm. to local now because the political climate had changed five years ago to compare with previous. Um, local results is, is a very is even a more distorted picture. Okay. When we compare, when we look at the national results uh, trends 2014, there are serious indications that these municipalities are under threat. The ANC slipped to the early 50s um, to 50 percent, 49 percent in some of these metropolitan areas. That's a huge threat to the ANC because we know already the 2014 election had shown that the ANC is becoming more and more of a rural party, that the rural vote is pulling it through on big national results. The ANC does not want to see a picture where it rules the country, but not the cities. 
And so it is putting everything into the mix to try to ensure that those municipalities will not go, be be lost for the the ANC. We have seen from recent opinion polls that the ANC is making some headway. For example, in Gauteng, they seem to have been on some resuscitation there. But then these opinion polls that we have available now, yeah. they do not yet screen those um, those percentage support for are people registered and are they intending to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Those screener factors are only applied closer to elections. But we know the ANC has not been slipping and slipping all the way in hopping. A big factor, of course, is the e-toll. And to what extent come election time, Voters will again be angered. The last time, 2014, Kauteng voters, and especially Johannesburg and Ikoreleni, and to some extent Pretoria voters, were angered by the Edo's. President Zuma's leadership came into that mix very strongly, too. But these factors are still there. So in, some, in many ways, we do not know exactly how those factors are going to play out. But the problems have not gone away. I mean, I hear you. And Professor, just as you were talking, I just got really curious about the scenario about the losing, just sticking on this issue of losing these key municipalities. What does governance look like in that scenario where a party controls the country but not key cities? What 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 actually happens in that situation? That, that would be unfortunate, if not disastrous, for a big, um, historically glorious political party for my liberation movement, and mm-hmm. they claim they still this liberation movement, to lose that kind of esteem, to have that concrete evidence that it has lost that esteem, the trust of voters. So, And if that happens, I believe it, it could have a domino kind of effect and accelerate national change. I think the ANC realizes this, and that is why they are working very, very hard on the ground and local areas through task teams, but also at the national level, making sure the national narratives are there so that it can it can survive those metropolitan votes. Because, yes, it is esteem and then the probably trigger, domino trigger effect. It will be disastrous for the ANC if they lose South Africa's big metros. Mm-hmm. And but we know whether they're going to lose it or not. ANC has is declining in terms of metropolitan mm-hmm. and urban support, and the demographic trend in a country is urbanisation. And once the ANC supporters come to the cities, they're exposed to more political options, to more contests, more debates, and. They they start realizing that their political, socioeconomic facts rather than political, do not depend on the ANC to such an extent that they can access opportunities and grants, etc., without voting for the ANC. Those kinds of knowledge come mm. to voters, in, not not exclusively, but as they urbanize, they become freer to exercise. About so the disability also fighting against demographic trends here in order to redeem itself and stop and make the buck stop here. But we also see how the ANC is reaching out to the rural areas, mm-hmm. not just that in terms of rural development initiatives, 
But on a bay, we even saw it last weekend at the law at the January the eighth statement, how the NC reached out to traditional leaders. And the fact that they are making such a big thing about traditional leaders for me says that they might have given, almost given up on the metros in the sense that they want to build this bulwark and realize that the traditional leaders are their future in terms of shoring up their rural vote to make sure that does not slip as well. I mean, I hear you. I mean, so much, so much to consider. <laughs> Professor, something you've not brought up that I love, I'm quite curious about, is the, the role of the IEC. So we saw the last chairperson resign, oh, and yeah. we saw the, the findings from some of the 2013 elections were found by the Constitutional Court to not have been free and fair. So I'm curious about what you see as the perception of the IEC going to this and, and, and party and community decisions to, to, to sort of respect the, the, the independence and the, and the freedom of these elections. Yes, the IEC has undergone quite a world change as well. It is not the grand, indisputably honorable organization that we became used to in the Mm. first decade decade and a half of democracy. We have, even former chairpersons like Brigalia Baum, there was never any doubt where her political loyalties were. Now, those were with the ANC. But she was a person who managed to separate her personal political life from her job at the IEC. And Pansy Kakula did up to a point until she ran into some trouble there. Now the IEC under Mr. Buma Mashinini, former advisor to President Zuma, very close to President Zuma, is the new chairperson. And that comes from a at a time when we know the Kokwe events where there was proof in court cases and held up in court judgments that the IEC had acted irreputably. And it, yes, one can say perhaps it was local officials, but the IEC has always in the past accepted the responsibility to ensure all actions are above board. And this was not the only case. In, in northern KwaZulu-Natal, in the Dundee area, there will have been problems also through a province through court cases in recent years. There have been many allegations from political parties, allegations that never quite get resolved from one election to another, but parties agree for peace sake they go on. So that all of us say that we have got an IEC that is not as squeaky clean nowadays and certainly doesn't have that image anymore that we had before, that it had before. And it comes at a time when it is more necessary than ever before because we know the governing party has been shoring up supporting all crucial state institutions. And um, I, I write about the details in my recent book. There are so many instances of mm-hmm. state institutions we see that. And the IEC, I just hope it can be proven to be absolutely above board and that there will be no irregularities in there because once that point of defense of democracy and constitutional democracy goes, then it is a free-for-all. Professor, there's not really much I can add there. Thank you so much for walking us through that, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come to you in the coming weeks as we move closer to the elections. You'll be welcome. Great to speak okay, to you. perfect.
That's Professor Susan Boyson from the Witt School of Governance walking us through the municipal elections and, and what we can expect there. I'm sure that's a story we'll keep coming to, and I'm sure you, Greg, will be following it a lot more closely. Next, switching to matters of the economy. It's been a big talking point um, you know, through December and throughout last year and coming into this year. The South African economy, the global economy. So we're talking to somebody who knows a bit more about that than we do. That's Nsakisi Maswangani, economics editor at the Business Day. Nsakisi, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. Now, Sakisi, I mean, as mentioned, we keep talking about this big word, the economy, and we're told it's not going well. But we actually want to dig into the details of, of what's behind these trends and what's actually going on. So if we could just start um, with the story about about in South Africa. We hear about business confidence being low and, and that the economy is bad. Could you just walk us through what's actually behind the trends of what's going on, especially with the RAND? Mm-hmm. Um, as you correctly indicated, um, a lot is already going on. I mean, we're hardly in um, uh, the, the end of the, at the end of the month, and already um, we're seeing the land um, coming under a lot of pressure. Um, for <clears throat> South Africa in particular, what is going on globally is what is at the moment um, uh, driving the land. Um, we know that what is going on in China, particularly with uh, weak economic growth, and uh, authorities in that country are uh, constantly intervening in their markets, um, has got uh, a lot of people, uh, jittery uh, investors, and we see that through the movement of uh, uh, investors reaching emerging market uh, economy assets such as the land and moving into um, uh, more safe, safer havens um, in the likes of, of, of the U.S. dollar. And obviously when the, we see uh, U.S. dollar strength coming through, then obviously um, the rent tends uh, to weaken. Um, but one thing to also indicate is that going into um, uh, the last month of last year, which was December, mm. um, some, some uh, local developments did drive the rent weaker. Um, the, the firing of the finance minister did also affect the rent uh, negatively. Um, but as you also indicated, 2016 is looking like it's going to be a very interesting year. Um, already as it is, um, talk around the brand weakness uh, combined with the drought, um, the, mm. there is already uh, that, that speculation that this will lead to uh, food price increases. So, so um, it, it, it will go some way and it will hurt uh, consumer pockets in some way. Um, and then obviously this, that's the brand weakness also um, feeds through into what um, uh, is going to happen in terms of monetary policy. Uh, we're already going into the first meeting of the Reserve Bank's uh, NPC later on this month. And uh, already the economists that we're speaking to at the moment are saying uh, we, we need to watch out that uh, it is possible that this weak rand will lead to um, a deterioration in the inflation outlook. And obviously if the inflation outlook deteriorates, then it means the Reserve Bank will have to move uh, more than it has, uh, say, for instance, last year where we only saw um, two rate hikes uh, uh, during the year. Okay, I mean, a lot a lot came up there. So you're saying um, a lot of the issues are actually from global trends and we're not making it any better by our, by our governance decisions that we're making here at home. You also mentioned sort of food prices and the drought are increasing food prices. Um, and just quickly before we jump, I want to talk about monetary policy, but just before that, I'm curious, how much blame can we put at, um, at, at the door of the president and, and, and our governance? Um, there seems to be a feeling that because of poor governance, people have no confidence in the country and its markets and therefore are moving their money elsewhere. So how much, if you were to sort of apportion blame, how much of this is a governance issue? Some of it obviously uh, has to be uh, apportioned to government. 
because, as I already indicated, the big issue last year uh, was, was, was when uh, President Zuma fired um, uh, uh, former finance minister Jean Chavene. And uh, although he tried to calm markets by bringing back uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Gordon, still the, the damage was already done. And, and once that happens, and, and we've, we've seen some of the comments that he's made um, around uh, how markets uh, had exaggerated the decision, and I, I don't think that uh, that does much to, to, to uh, sort of allay the fears and, and sort of... Um, try and top down markets again, because if you're going to tell them uh, you reacted to the decision that I made, mm. then it, it doesn't speak much to confidence. And that's why we see business confidence being as low as it is. And the problem with business confidence being as low as it is, is that um, businesses will withhold whatever money they have. They, they're not going to invest that much in the economy. Yep. And the sales are, are, are significant. If, if they're not investing in, in, in fixed capital investment, for instance, then um, those infrastructure projects, they're not participating as much, and they're not creating jobs as much. So uh, some of the blame really um, can be apportioned to domestic uh, development, just as it did when we saw the, the massive strikes in, in the platinum uh, industry by then. And, and so the problem with that is that it gives us a much uh, lower base to work from. So, for instance, if this year had started with the global development and Messinen had not been fired last year, the rent would have been probably much better off than it is at the moment. So Mrs. Zuma's decisions at, at, in, in December did sort of push the rent off to much weaker levels. And then by the time the global development came uh, <laughs> this month, then it just gave us sort of like a, a very um, bad position to start from. I mean, I hear you. Um, another question I've had is I, I'm glad that you brought up platinum because I wanted to ask about the commodities. We've been seeing prices dropping significantly with oil and other commodities. And I'm curious, why, why are the prices so low? Why are they decreasing? And, and how, how do you think that affects us? Mm-hmm. I think the majority of it has got to do with uh, global sentiment again. Um, number one, um, global economic growth is uh, just expected to be modest. Uh, just as it was last year, and that means that if global um, economic growth is is modest, so will uh, demand. And therefore, if demand is modest, then mm. uh, there isn't uh, that drive for, for prices to go up, because obviously if the demand is low, then the, it, nobody is buying. Well, they are buying, but not to, to a, a very large extent, yep. and therefore um, the prices can't, can't really improve. Um, the, the, some of the um, people that have been making um, uh, comments around or, or releasing reports rather around commodity prices are all um, a bit uh, pessimistic about uh, commodity prices mm. this year. Um, just going already, we're not even through January yet, and, and we saw that um, platinum prices, um, iron ore prices have, have remained uh, quite weak. So for South Africa, and, and the other aspect of this is, is of course, China. Uh, China demands a lot uh, of uh, South African minerals. So if the demand in China is weak, obviously for South Africa, the consequences are a bit dire because um, mining companies, uh, for instance, will not be selling as much. Uh, they won't need um, those many workers. So it talks to retrenchments. It talks to the fact that they won't be able to pay as much uh, revenue or tax revenue to the state. And then if the state is not making that money, then it doesn't spend on the kind of projects that it needs to spend on. So yep. 
it, it, it's a whole wheel. It, it, it just, uh, everything is just interconnected. I mean, it really sounds like it. It almost sounds like we don't things will things we don't think things will go well, and because of that, things don't go well. And then it's just like an endless cycle of, of sort of reinforcing outlook. Yeah, but 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 there is one saving grace at least for South Africa, and yeah. that's the yeah. the very very low uh, oil prices. Okay. Um, oil prices are. I I think the last time I checked, they were hovering at about thirty two, thirty three dollars mm. a barrel. Mm. So obviously that that's that's a bit of a saving grace for us because you can imagine if we had the land at sixteen eighty um at the moment <laughs> and if we had the oil price at uh-huh. uh, ninety, a hundred dollars a barrel, then yeah, right. that just would, would just spell disaster complete for us. So at least we can just be thankful that um the the, the oil prices are where they're at uh, at the moment. Um, that's that's interesting. I definitely hadn't thought of that. Uh, now, Sakisi, something you mentioned that I'm that has been puzzling me is the is the is the Chinese economy and what's going on there. Um, I mean, last year and over the past eighteen months, we were seeing great growth. Everybody was excited and it was happiness. And all of a sudden, you know, we're hearing that you know China could be triggering the next you know economic crisis or global financial crisis. So I'm just curious, what changed? Why did it change so fast? And and what's going on? Um, I think a lot of what is happening in China has to do with the fact that, I, if I remember correctly, it was last year or two years back when the Chinese government announced that they would um, be turning their economy around from being investment-led to being to, to a consumption-led economy. Mm. So um, it means they wanted to sort of cut back on the investment yeah. side of things um, um, and maybe just um, encourage uh, consumption from especially within within the country, so that talks a lot to um, what happens to to demand, and then obviously they were not spared from what happened in, in with the global uh, economic recession. Mm. Um, and of course, being the world's second biggest uh, economy, uh, what happens in China really does affect uh, a lot of the countries um, around the world. Countries which um, China imports from. Um, such as South Africa, uh, for for instance. Um, so um, <clears throat> a lot of the focus that are coming out at the moment are showing that um, Chinese economic growth is uh, expected to slow, um, and that country's uh, growth is expected to slow at its uh, to grow at its slowest pace in 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 25 years. So that is really significant. Um, and it just remains to be seen whether the stimulus measures which uh, the, the, the Chinese authorities are currently um, are putting out there are really going to work. We've seen an, a number of times trying to show up the, the yuan, their currency, um, but of course that has been negative spillovers for, for other uh, global financial markets. Whew, I hear you. Um, probably my last question is, what can we do about it? I mean, you mentioned monetary policy a bit earlier. I wanted to just leave it for the end. Is you know we're hearing that you know the global markets are not doing great. Locally, we're not doing great either. So, from a monetary policy standpoint, as a sort of South African government, what what do you think we can do, and what 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 do you think we should do? Unfortunately, from a monetary uh, policy point of view, it's going to be a very very tough time for for monetary policy uh, authorities. The Reserve Bank has already had to raise rates uh, twice last year, as I've indicated. Um, this year, they may have to to do it more than two times because we've got six meetings for the year, and maybe one of the economists that I spoke to uh, was, was, was already saying that we may see them raise at four of those six meetings. So on their side, 
um, if, if they do do that, and to some point it does uh, uh, encourage investors to move into South Africa, then hopefully we could see some uh, RAND uh, strength coming through. But it won't be significant because the RAND continues to be driven more by what is happening globally um, than what is happening uh, uh, in the country at the moment. In terms of fiscal policy, that's, I think that's where a lot of the work will have to come through. Um, fiscal policy, if government will, will we, we know that they are under pressure to, to rein in uh, on the spending, but whatever spending ceilings have been put in place, it just means that whatever money that is there really needs to be spent. Like, I, I, do, I do not think they can afford, um, especially at the local and provincial level, to, I mean, year in, year out, we hear of budgets being returned or not being spent um, uh, adequately. So I think it will have to be a lot of work going into uh, the spending, particularly um, on infrastructure uh, projects, um, and maybe just on government to put a tighter leash on uh, some of their projects, because if they put out a tender, then maybe processes to put more um, uh, monitoring processes in place to make sure that this spending really does happen. And, and we've seen that when this spending happens, um, people get jobs. I mean, we saw with the massive infrastructure projects of uh, World Cup 2010, mm. um, when those projects are built, when implementation really does happen on the ground, then we see the people getting the jobs, we see, you know, activity happening in the economy. So I, I think it would have to be uh, that kind of uh, uh, expenditure that needs to happen. But of course, with them just speaking to um, the spending ceilings that are there, just to keep the rating agencies uh, at bay. I hear you. Sounds like we've really got our our, our year cut out for us and our work cut out for us. Takisi, yes. thank you so much for making time for us. I'm sure we'll speak again as we go into 2016. Okay, thanks so much for, for, for the time. Okay, perfect. That was Takisi Maswangani, economics editor at the Business Day, just telling us what's going on with the global economy. We're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Daily Maverick Show on Cliffcentral.com. Back for the first show of this year and really just talking about some of the new stories to watch. We talked a bit about municipal elections uh, and the global economy, and now something else that's that's a real big one is we want to talk about we want to talk about the American elections. I mean, it's mostly been Donald Trump and he's sort of been been um, what's the word dominating that. So we want to know, you know, is he actually going to be the president and and what's and what's actually going to go on with that. So we want to talk to Brooke Spector, the the Daily Maverick sort of political correspondent on all matters American. Brooks, can you hear us? I can hear. If you you have to speak up just a little bit, okay. but I can hear you. There we go. I think that's a bit better. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So first, I'd like to start with the the State of the Union address coming up. I think that's tonight, Washington time. And I'm curious, what are you what are you expecting from President Obama? Yeah, good evening. I mean, it's going to be his uh, last State of the Union message. He, he leaves office come next January. Uh, and it, unlike most of them, uh, usually a State of the Union message is one of those things where a president sets out his or potentially her legislative and political agenda for mm. the coming year. Uh, and it's the, it's the prime way to, to say, this is what I want to achieve, yeah. uh, both the domestic and uh, sometimes foreign audiences as well, uh, in the case of uh, international partners or antagonists. Uh, but the last one for a president after seven years or so, it, 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 it takes on a very different character. 
it, it can't really set out a legislative agenda because everybody else's attention is on other things already, uh, not the least of which is an election, which is which is coming up and the process leading to it. Instead, what he is what he is inevitably going to do is to set out uh, a way, a, a summing up what we have achieved, where we have come from, where we were, where we are now, and uh, hopefully because he obviously expects to be helpful uh, in the uh, in the election for a Democratic candidate, uh, what the next president, assuming they're, they're a Democrat, should be able to look forward to. Um, but the real challenge uh, is not what he says or in what people disagree with about what he says, but in holding the nation's attention, because most people now are saying, hmm, yes, well, old news, uh, that's that was that was then we're looking forward to, to the next and so he's got to figure out a way uh, that uh, in the words of some of the commentators I've been reading in the last day or so that says yes we have sorted much out there is still some to do but the country is in a better place than it was before and you must stay with us rather than those other guys um, but again keeping the attention of the nation on that is going to be much harder than it might have been two, three, four years ago. I mean, I hear you. And one of the big questions that's coming up is about Guantanamo and the and and whether he will actually be able to to close that down before he leaves office. Do you think or we can realistically expect that to happen? Well, the problem with Guantanamo. First of all, Guantanamo itself is a naval base um, that is under permanent lease from Cuba, and that was a. That, that's a holdover from, from the Spanish-American War of 1898. Um, Guantanamo, in the, sort of in the political parlance, though, is the uh, prison yep. which is holding a decreasing number of, uh, of al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-linked or presumably al-Qaeda-linked uh, uh, prisoners. Uh, and they're there because if they were in the continental U.S., the U.S. justice system... Uh, would inevitably be used uh, to bring them to uh, what is already obviously a fairly uh, long-delayed set of trials. Uh, Guantanamo is not U.S. territory, so the justice system kind of, sort of, doesn't apply. But the problem is that the laws that set up these incarcerations are laws, and they're not simply presidential decisions. And so he's uh, he, he's caught between having this statement that I am going to close the prison for these people uh, in my term, term or terms of office, and the reality that it is increasingly unlikely that Congress, uh, at least the current one, would ever pass any sort of legislation to allow such such prison and prisoners to be closed and for them to be released somewhere. Then, of course, there's the other problem. Uh, where to release them to. Most of the countries that they are from don't want them back. And Brooks, if we... It's Greg here. Sorry, Happy yeah. New Year. <laughs> if, I thought the voice changed there. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we look at Obama's last uh, months in office now, can you just give us a very quick list as what do you think his key priorities will be? Well, I mean, the, the, the first one uh, is going to be keeping the lid on the bottle of the, of the, the, the conflicts in the Middle East uh, in Iraq and, and Syria, as far as U.S. involvement is concerned in Afghanistan, to a lesser degree, because there are 
there are many fewer troops uh, stationed in Afghanistan, uh, but yeah. it's maintaining. Sorry. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you're there. Oh, yep. Here, yeah, go for it. Go for it, Brooks. Sorry, uh, I heard a blip and a and a electronic dust, and then we were gone. <laughs> um, keeping the lid on U.S. engagement in Iraq, uh, Syria, and to a lesser degree in Afghanistan, because the level of force in Afghanistan is is actually much lower than it is even in Iraq. Um, the problem is that all of those things are not entirely uh, within the grasp of the president or his advisors or the government itself uh, to control, because there are obviously all these other actors in, in each of these three places. Um, the, the, the second priority clearly is going to be um, to sustain and bring forward this nuclear deal, the, six, the P5 plus one plus Iran nuclear deal uh, that limits Iran's ability to produce uh, nuclear weapons material for the next decade. Um, but then beyond that, of course, there's, all, there's, there's the problematic circumstances of what North Korea has or doesn't have in the way of nuclear weaponry. Mm. And further afield, uh, it's in dealing with uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia uh, as it engages uh, unhappily, at least from the American and Ukrainian positions, uh, with the rest of the world, and China's continuing assertion of capabilities in the Western Pacific and beyond. But turning beyond that, of course, there, there are some, some major domestic imperatives, but these all tie up in international affairs, too, mm. and that's sustaining the economic growth in the United States, Brooks. Uh, which is moving along at a fairly good clip, uh, unemployment. Brooks, down, I'm just going to have to... Sorry, Brooks, I'm just going to have to get in there because we're starting to run out of time. Yeah, sure, of, of course, with the domestic politics, one of the key issues in that ties into international issues that we're going to see in, in, in the U.S. this year is the November elections. It is set for November, I'm correct? Yeah, it's the first Tuesday in November. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, it, we, we've been at this for months and months and months, mm. but there hasn't been any actual voting yet. It's all been public opinion polls, posturing and shouting and screaming and chest beating, you know, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the nature of what King Kong might have tried to do if he were running for office. So, so where are we in terms, of, in terms of the elections? We're still at so, – so that, that joke has got Kingsley just, just laughing funny. hysterically in the studio. Yeah. But um, in terms of the, the Democratic and Republican um, nominations, where are we at now and what is the, what's the process we're going to see? Okay, well, the clock starts now, actually. Um, there's the, the first of the primaries and caucuses, these processes, state by state by state, that actually pick the delegates uh, to go to the national convention, delegates that are, that are pledged to one candidate or another. The first of these is in Iowa in the middle of, in middle of the dead winter, uh, cold and snow and who knows what else. Uh, in Iowa on February 1st, where people gather in their uh, in their thousands of church halls and school halls and community halls uh, to pick uh, the delegates county by county. Uh, and then there is the first primary in New Hampshire uh, a week and a bit after that on February 9th, and then South Carolina and Nevada. And then comes uh, in, in mid-March uh, what they're calling Super Tuesday, which is 12 primaries 
uh, on the same night. What you will see, though, as a result, it, is that one way or another, the, the nominees from the two parties will effectively have been pretty well sorted out by March 13th. But what you have not seen yet uh, in the Republicans is a clear front-runner in terms of sustained strength on the ground. What you see are lots of opinion polls that say Donald Trump uh, is the choice of, of many Republican-leaning voters, but you also see a poll in Iowa, the first of these events, that says Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, a, a fairly right-wing man and a fairly abrasive one, but also a very smart one, is actually leading in these preliminary polls in Iowa. So it's going to take probably until mid-March before we've got that figured out. Looking forward, it's most likely the Democrats will still end up with Hillary Clinton, former senator from New York, former secretary of state, and perhaps most famously former first lady uh, with Bill Clinton. Uh, and uh, smart money in the Republicans, oh, it's still somebody other than Donald Trump, but he continues to frighten and scare the life out of pollsters and and commentators across the country. Brooks, uh, so you believe Donald Trump won't win the win the nomination. Can you just get in one sentence tell us why that is? Uh, because his positions are so extraordinarily extreme and his public statements are so incendiary uh, that it would be a, it would be the culmination of an absolute death wish on the part of the Republican Party to end up picking him as their candidate. There you have it from the expert himself. Brooks, thank you so much for making time for us. We now, we must have you in studio next time so we can dig into this properly. It's always a pleasure to talk. We have The, the clock is really running now, so this is actually something we're going to have to spend some, some serious time in talking about, I think. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Take care. Perfect. Greg, something we were talking about on the way here is whether Donald Trump is as crazy as he seems or whether it's all an act. I think partly it's an act. I guess he's got so much showmanship about him. Yeah. You know, he was on, what was that TV show again? Which one? The Apprentice. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's definitely the yeah. showman, but yeah. I actually think he's partly just crazy. I don't think he's that nuts. I don't think anybody can be this crazy and have gone this far in life. So I think it's, a, I think he just read the situation and saw a gap for a really crazy guy and he's just playing the part so well and we're just, we're just buying it. I don't think he wants to be president. There must be somewhere he's making money off of this. I just hope we don't have the chance to see him as president to decide whether he actually really is crazy <laughs> well, or here not. Next year I hope now, we never get to test him. Like, that was really unfortunate what happened, the occupation of Canada by American forces. Anyway, we've just got a few minutes to go. I want to switch topics and bring it back home. And talking about the Daily Maverick comment section. So, Greg, I'll have you introduce our next sort of guest and we'll, we'll jump into that. Yeah, um... Uh, yesterday we had uh, one of the big moves in the Daily Maverick recently is that the website, the publication, decided to, for now, suspend our comments section. And we thought would it's quite quite a big move and obviously different uh, online platforms around the world uh, looking at how they can moderate these issues. Um, so on the line we've got our CEO from Daily Maverick, Stilly uh, Sharalumbo. Stilly, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, it's Greg. Good, good. Uh, can you just walk us through this decision, Stilly? Well, it's, uh, as you know, something we've been discussing and mulling over uh, for a while now, uh, not only on the back of some other bigger news sites, you know, going the route of pulling their comments, but you know, even before that, um, 
there was always the case of bad apples causing uh, causing problems and and uh, you know really just diluting the level of debate that comment sections are supposed to be there for to achieve um, to encourage a sense of community and and furthering the discussion that's been started by journalists on the site um, and you know so we've been mulling over it and it's been a it's, it's been a thorny issue for publishers the world over and you know we've seen the likes of some of the biggest news organisations in the world just you know, throw their hands up and say, look, we, you know, we can't do this anymore. We're not willing to do this. Uh, the anonymity of the internet, um, you know, allows people sitting in their underwear at home to be, you know, throwing and spewing uh, vitriol at, uh, at, you know, just about anyone, whether it's journalists or fellow commentators. So it's been an issue. I don't think anyone's really solved it uh, properly. Uh, there have been a couple of experimental models that have been in play around the world. I know the New York Times has looked at creating a platform that was going to allow for better and greater moderation. But the challenge with moderating is that in an industry where resources are hugely limited and where there's huge strains strain on the financial resources and human resources, to then reallocate those already limited resources to um, you know someone whose entire job is to moderate you know uh, what has come to be some soul destroying um soul destroying comments um you know you got to wonder is this the best use of our time our effort and our money and uh you know we came to that decision until something better comes along we're going to suspend it uh we're going to gauge the reaction from our readers to see what they think of the decision and we're going to investigate and keep looking at uh other ways of potentially encouraging reader involvement in the site and still fostering that sense of community that we've you know we've tried to build up along the years and stilly how has the reaction been from the readers so far and the public it's it's been really positive um you know i think what has helped uh, was a really well-crafted editorial piece that we published you know walking people through the reasons why we we did what we did um on the back of that um i'd say you know nine out of ten emails that we get are really sorry to see it go, but completely understand. It's sort of been that kind of tone. Um, And, you know, like at the end of the day, it it was just getting worse and worse as, you know, people migrated from, you know, some of the other bigger news sites uh, that had shut off comments and had migrated to us. So, um, you know, a lot more, it was taking more time to sort of uh, deal with those bad apples. Uh, but the, the the feedback's been good. It's been supportive. It's been keep doing what you're doing. Uh, journalists are doing great work. Sorry that the comments were detracting from it. And that was another reason was that, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort and, mm. you know, you guys do great work and are professionals. And, and then you got some, you know, some nut job being given the same level of, of, of space and prominence yep. to, to post something and you go, kind of, well, that doesn't really seem right and it was also damaging for the brand. Um, so it's been supportive. Uh, there has been the odd person, you know, uh, there was even one one person claiming it to be a government conspiracy wow. trying to muzzle, um, you know, free thinking and speech of, of, of everyday South Africans. And, you know, so we were a little uh, surprised at that, but I guess, you know, this is what the internet can bring out in, in some people. Uh, but yeah, supportive. Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the odd person who's not in line with this. I mean, so, so what do you say to that person who says this is unfair? Um, you're, um, you're discussing you know, was, important it, stuff that's important to me and you're not letting me have my say and, and discuss it publicly and you're, and you're sort of curtailing that freedom. Yeah, I guess we said that in the editorial was that, 
uh, as much as we'd like to, and our ideals were that comment sections would foster greater discussion and um, and sort of evolve the discussion. Um, you know, if, if people can't you can't sort of adhere to the the unwritten rules of civility, um, you know, when when engaging in that, you know, it's not. You know, it's not a right that people have. You know, we we, we ask people to come and read the stuff that we that we produced and, and paid people to produce, um, and we you know we allow them free access to that. Um, and in, in no way does it say that you know you have the right to come and write whatever crap that isn't you know that isn't conducive to the discussion. And uh, people abuse that that opportunity. And um, they've been naughty children, so we've taken it away, and now everyone else must suffer for it. And it's the kind of decision that was never going to be, mm. um, it was never going to satisfy everyone. Um, but as I said, the, the majority of the, um, uh, you know, the majority of the people have been supportive. The kind of people who were like up in arms, uh, never going to read Daily Maverick again. You know, we only came to you for the comments. Uh, probably people you need to worry about at a, at, a, at a mental level, anyway. So we wouldn't be, you know, sad to see them go. I hear you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. But thanks for making time to come and break it down for us. Thanks, guys. Okay. Keep up the good work. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks. That's still that's still Charalumbus. I always mess Charalumbus. up the name. Jesus, CEO. You should know your boss's name, right? That's that's <laughs> me. that's those are things you should know. Let, let's hope he just sort of he, he didn't stay on the line after that no, little gaffe. Let's let's move on. Move mm. on. Move on. Final thing: if this is a giant conspiracy and we got a government payout to cut down the comment section, I'm really pissed off that I did not see any of that money. That's pretty messed up. <laughs> well, first of all, for listeners out there, it's not a giant conspiracy, and there's no money paid. I don't think it's actually. It's so funny that people think the government is trying to get them from stop commenting on anyway. Anyway, I think after this whole show, one thing's for sure is that it's going to be a pretty hot year in in news and politics. There's a lot going on, and I think. There's going to be a lot of tension this year and a lot of big stories coming out. That's it. And you know where to come to find the the, the, the intelligent news without the hate speech to make sure that you're on top of everything going on. Thanks for tuning in. That's Greg Nicholson, Kingsley Kipuri on The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. See you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.